today from Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! Stenographers to power today on Pacifica's Democracy Now! The administration's line keeps changing on the targets taken out in last week's U.S. missile attacks. A British engineer who worked at the Shifa plant in Khartoum tells us what he knows. We'll look at the media's willingness to scrutinize some presidential stories more closely than others. And Noam Chomsky, one of America's leading dissidents, says that principles, not pretexts, are what count. All that and more on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! This is Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now!, the exception to the rulers, as Amy Goodman would say. Amy Goodman is on assignment. Sitting in for her, I'm Laura Flanders. The U.S. today is describing the proof it says it gathered before last week's cruise missile attack on a pharmaceutical plant in Sudan. An intelligence official says U.S. intelligence agents quietly obtained a soil sample prior to the attack, and it was that that led the Clinton administration to conclude that the plant purported to be making medicine was actually developing a key ingredient in deadly VX nerve gas. The official, speaking on condition of anonymity to several newspapers and CNN yesterday, says the soil sample shows traces of a substance they call EMPTA. Administration officials refuse to say how they got the soil sample. The official says EMPTA is a material with no commercial use but is a key ingredient of VX. However, the papers also report today that the chemical is two steps away from being produced into VX and one of those steps is complicated. Sudan's leader has accused President Clinton of being a war criminal in the first degree for approving the attack on a company that manufactures half of Sudan's medicines. There were also reports that Clinton knew it was a non-military target before the attack, that from Sunday's Observer in the British newspaper. The Sudanese president says the factory is not equipped for chemical weapons. Engineers who worked at the plant backed up his claim. They also said the plant has no links to Osama bin Laden, the man the U.S. was targeting because he was allegedly behind the U.S. embassy bombings in Kenya. The Sudanese president says if the U.S. was convinced in any case that it was producing chemical weapons, it should not have blown it up in the middle of a residential neighborhood. In Congo, rebel forces in the Democratic Republic said on Tuesday that hundreds of people, mostly civilians, had been killed in raids by Angolan and Zimbabwean warplanes. Angola and Zimbabwe have both deployed troops to support Kabila, who is facing a revolt led by ethnic Tutsis in his vast Central African country. South African officials said they were unaware of a trip by U.S. President Bill Clinton's special envoy for the region, Howard Wolpe, who visited the Angolan capital Luanda at the weekend, Wolpe said in Luanda he had urged Angolan President Jose Eduardo dos Santos to support a ceasefire and the withdrawal of all foreign troops from Laurent Kabila's Congo. Dos Santos was the only one of 14 regional leaders who did not send any representative to the weekend summit of the South African Development Community, or SADC, which is split over how to resolve the Congo conflict. In Nigeria, the Electoral Commission on Tuesday announced February 27, 1999 as the date for presidential elections to end years of military rule in that West African country. The chairman of the Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, who announced the date at a national news conference in the capital, said elections to the National Assembly would take place on February 20th. He said election of governors and legislators for the country's 36 states would be on January 9th. 
9th. According to that timetable, the electoral process will start with the compilation of a new voters register and will last for two and that will last for two weeks starting October 5th. Guidelines for the registration of political parties released by the uh, ACTA require would be parties to first contest local council elections scheduled for December 5th and only those that score 10% of the votes cast in at least 24 of the country's 36 states will be registered as legitimate political parties. The White House is hoping strong backers of reform are drafted into Russia's new government. U.S. officials say Vice President Gore has spoken with Viktor Chernomyrdin, the man Boris Yeltsin brought back as prime minister just five months after he was fired. Aides say Gore stressed the importance of pressing ahead with reform and measures to restore investor confidence. A 16-year-old boy armed only with a water pistol was critically wounded by New York City police who fired at him 17 times. Michael Jones remains in critical condition today. He was hit six times in the legs by two Plains Clothes officers who confronted the teen Sunday while he rode his bicycle. New York police said the boy refused to drop his black water gun when challenged, but Germaine Congress, who was riding his bike with Jones, said Jones was dropping his pistol when he was shot. Officer David Gross fired all 16 rounds from his 9mm semi-automatic pistol at Jones. Sergeant Michael Jacobellis fired once. It's illegal in the city to sell or possess a toy gun that looks real or is painted black. Of course, the definition of what looks real is subject to interpretation. The Clinton administration plans to appeal a crucial court decision on the census. A Washington federal court yesterday ruled against a plan to use statistical sampling in the 2000 census. Backers of sampling say it's needed in order to correct the undercounting of minorities and people who live in the inner city. The Census Bureau figures 4 million people were overlooked in the 1991 one-on-one count. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! pressure to back up its claims, the Clinton administration let U.S. intelligence officials yesterday discuss some of the evidence that they say led to their decision to strike the the Shifa pharmaceutical plant in Khartoum, Sudan. An anonymous U.S. intelligence official briefed the press yesterday on the evidence that they have acquired. According to the papers today, those anonymous government sources are insinuating that the Iraqi government was using the plant to make chemical weapons. Yesterday, Mike McCurry, uh, administration spokesperson, dismissed questions about the factory's function before this U.S. intelligence uh, briefing took place. This is how he put it. This is Mike McCurry. The target uh, that they aimed at was hit. Uh, The damage that was done was extensive. And as Mr. Berger indicated yesterday, our confidence that that facility was uh, manufacturing chemical weapons precursors is, is quite high. That confidence is quite high. Well, the confidence is high, but the story keeps changing. Only four days ago, the State Department claimed it had bombed the pharmaceutical factory because of its ties to Saudi dissident Osama bin Laden, as well as what the State Department claimed were its productions of the nerve agent VX. The government also at that point said that the factory had no commercial product or any commercial use at all. Now that whole story has changed. The administration does concede that the plant probably also manufactured medicine 
medicines. The Sudanese government says the factory produced nearly half of the country's medicine. All of this is coming because of revelations by Western and other journalists who have toured the, the targeted site and seen pharmaceutical vials and others lying all over the ground, and also because of eyewitness accounts from those familiar with the plant who worked there in the 1990s. U.S. State Department Deputy Press Spokesman Jim Foley was supposed to be with us on this program. Just an hour ago, we received a call that he was, as he put it, not feeling well and couldn't come on the program right now. We do, however, with, have with us on the show Tom Carnuffin, who helps to build and equip the plant, the Shifa pharmaceutical plant in Khartoum. He also worked as a technical manager for the family who owns the plant. He lives in Wall in northern England. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Mr. Carnuffin. Good morning. What was what was your role at the Shifa plant first? Tell us how you became familiar with it. Well, actually working for the family uh, as technical manager, I was involved in many projects both in Saudi Arabia and in Sudan. Uh, the, the medicine factory was their pride and joy. Um, they were well known for the fact of uh, developing it uh, throughout the Gulf. Um, I went there on when, whenever necessary there was a problem or whenever they forgot to do something, you know, what do we do now because we forgot to put the fire system in or, you know, we need some furniture or we need some computers or whatever. So I went there on a very regular basis, even if it was just actually to meet the, the heads of the family because they were there having tea that day. Um, you know, so I was very familiar with the factory. What, in your mind, was, the, was produced at Shifa? What was the purpose of the plant? The, the purpose of the plant was to produce medicine um, for uh, Sudan, um, both human medicine and veterinary products. Uh, there was two basic parts to it, the veterinary side and the, the, the medicine for, for the populace. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, the U.S. officials have been kind of under pressure to, to back up their claims that there was evidence that led to their decision to strike. What do you make of their claim that soil samples acquired by covert means revealed, in fact, the precursors to the nerve agent VX? Well, actually, it, it is a little ambiguous, isn't it? I mean, so, you know, uh, soil samples... Um, around the factory. I very much doubt if there would be any spillage actually outside of the factory. If there was any spillage, it would be inside of the factory. Um, inside of the factory, um, where they say it was made, this is, you know, in their initial statements, it was made actually in the veterinary products uh, side of it. That building is a, is a burnt-out shell. So actually, if they want to do any... Um, uh, audit of the situation, you know, they've been invited to, to go and do that now. Any, uh, you know, remnants of, of the product, you know, must still be there. If they, could, if they say they could find it actually in, in soil samples outside the factory, surely they should be able to find it inside. Well, of but course for it... some reason or other, actually, you know, um, even the United Nations turned down an investigation into that. Well, I was just going to say, at the United Nations, U.S. Deputy Ambassador Peter Burley said yesterday it was unnecessary to send a technical team to investigate the claims uh, because they believe they already knew. Based on our own information, it doesn't seem to have any point, he said, in response to that request. Well, come, by come. You know, you know it's, many, it's many decades ago, you know, that, um, that America stopped lynching. Um, you know, but uh, have they really stopped lynching, you know, when actually they're... they're People are guilty because they say they're guilty. For goodness sake, please give people the chance for to, you know, have redress against their claims. You know, it's not as if they're going into um, 
uh, an aggressive uh, country like you know like Iraq you know the the weapons inspectors are quite prepared to go in in there you know under under duress and and, and do the necessary uh, uh, investigations my goodness, actually, Sudan is laying out the carpet for them to go, and they won't go. What's the matter? <laughs> well, one interesting line in the AP report on this anonymous intelligence official's briefing yesterday uh, comes in the paragraph where the argument is made that this substance, or EMPTA, the material Emptor, with yes. no commercial use that's supposedly a key ingredient to VX, could, as they put it, take up a very small space within the sprawling plant, and that evidence may be difficult for international inspectors to find. Mind. Well, actually, can I actually, you know, start right at the beginning? This isn't the sprawling plant. This is really a very small plant. It's not a large complex at all. You know, you could walk right around the actual complex, you know, with, with, you know under, under three minutes, no, no problem at all. It's not a large plant. And actually, as I say, the, the area which they say this was um, being processed in, you know, is, is still standing effectively. Um, you know, there'll be no difficulty in finding this if they, if they say it was there. Well, as I say, I'm very disappointed that Jim Foley couldn't make it with us here this morning because I would be so interested to hear how he and yourself would discuss this matter as we don't have him here and we do have you. Um, could you perhaps give our audience a picture or a description of the plant that you have the personal uh, familiarity with? What does yes, it look like? The plant was, was, there was basically three buildings. Um, along the back uh, sort of part of the compound there was, there was a long narrow building which was the, the animal medicine part uh, it was on two floors with the stairs actually going up at the right hand end and a lift included um, in front of that there was a square block building which actually was the one for um, the, the uh, human medicines um, with the basic sort of uh, uh, goods inwards and uh, one, two, three, four processing areas and a, a packaging area and a, and a dispatch area. At the front of the building, there was a, a predominant office. This, again, this was on three floors. Um, just behind it, on a, a little leg out to the, to the back of it, was a, was a laboratory for quality assurance. But, um, you know, not, nothing, nothing enormous at all. I'm gonna I ask suppose you to... the whole thing was in, in an area of about, um, let's see, about 50 meters square. I'm going to ask you to hold your thought right there one moment. We're going to, become, we're going to come right back to you uh, after a very short break. Yes. We're going to take this 60-second break for stations to identify themselves.
We're talking with Tom Carnarfon of Hexham, Northumberland, a really wall Northumberland, England, who worked as a technical manager from 1992 to 1996 for the Baboud family, who owned the Shifa plant that was bombed last week by U.S. cruise missiles in Khartoum, Sudan. Uh, Mr. Carnarfon, as you're describing the plant, you have told the press what, from your experience, led you to believe that there was no possibility of this installation lending itself, as you put it, to the manufacture of chemical weapons. Can you lay that out for our audience? What about its structure would make that impossible? Well, yes, actually there was no um, internal uh, mechanical safety factors for uh, the processing of anything hazardous at all. Um, For instance, in the the veterinary side, you know, the doorways open directly onto the actual um, roadways in the factory. So, you know, anything that would, anything, any spillages or anything like this, you know, would immediately be, you know, out into into the public uh, domain. Um, it just wasn't, it just wasn't mechanically suitable for to do it in. There was no um, uh, decontamination areas or, you know, uh, uh, clothing for the for the actual workers to wear, you know, for if they were dealing with anything hazardous. And actually, this has been borne out by a packaging engineer who went out there in March from England. And um, as he says, you know, there was no high security there. Um, he was actually able to to go right through the factory space without any hindrance. And, you know, he's made very welcome. So, you know, this is not an establishment where, you know, if they're doing something secret, you know, I mean, so there, there would, you know, there would be restrictions on, on access. This was never so. This was never so. What about the need for medicine in Sudan? You came close to dying while you were there, as I understand it, and you have something yeah. of a first-hand experience yeah. of just <laughs> Very much what so this might mean. Actually, and I had to be airlifted to, to Saudi Arabia. Um, and obviously working not only there at that factory in Khartoum, which obviously is you know, the principal city in Khartoum, in uh, Sudan, um, out in rural Sudan, where I worked you know, extensively, you know, it was it was unbelievable the sort of um, hardships that the the populace had to to suffer. You know, from the basic things of malaria and bilharzia, but you know, diarrhea and dysentery and things like this was you know unbelievable. And um, the need for the medicine was was desperate. Yes, they did bring medicine in from Egypt and from Jordan and Syria, but um, you know, obviously it was foreign currency. Um, so, you know, the, the need to manufacture it there was quite essential. Plus, actually, the factory and its setup and the brief in its setup was that actually the dispensers and the pharmacists, you know, would travel out into the areas and see the needs and so forth and make sure that little Abdullah actually took one tablet a day rather than six all at once, you know, and none for the rest of the week. So all these things, you know, were as a, was a spin-off from the, the factory's concept. Well, we have to turn now from this subject to another one here on Democracy Now! I'd like to get your closing comments to the U.S. media, perhaps, as that's where we're going to go next, uh, Mm -hmm. as they try to field this information coming from anonymous sources in the the U.S. administration that it's supposed to back up the Clinton administration's claim that they had evidence that led to their decision to the strike. Uh, What do you think journalists need to be asking and uh, demanding of the authorities in this case? Well, actually, I don't know. I'm just a simple engineer, actually, with, you know, basic um, 
ideas and instincts. And actually, my objective from now is to find some way of actually auditing the situation now so that this thing doesn't fester in the world uh, theater, you know, forever. Because inevitably, the Sudanese is going to see this forevermore as, you know, something that was done by the Americans uh, without them having any possible redress. You know, somehow or other, this must be investigated by some uh, neutral authority and, you know, for the report to be shown uh, and made public. It's no use sort of somebody going there or some government structure going there and, and investigating it, producing the report in two years' time, you know, when there's some other news uh, that's covering it up. It must be done now, and it must be seen to be done now by some neutral party. Thank you very much. Tom Carnuffin helped to build and equip the Shifa plant in Khartoum. He also worked as a technical manager for the family who owned the plant. He lives in Wall, England, and he's been with us by telephone here on Democracy Now. Thank you very much, Mr. Carnuffin. You are listening to Democracy Now. One more time, we're going to take a minute break and be back with you in 60 seconds. profession that's been fascinated with the topic of presidential truth-telling for the last six months and more, what's, that's in the field of sexual affairs, U.S. journalists have accepted pretty much what they've been told on the topic of U.S. military ones. Uh, last week, the Sudanese plant was targeted in reprisal for the embassy attacks. Now it's reported in the New York Times and elsewhere that the plan was in the works long before this sample was being acquired and so on. There was no commercial product. Now there was a commercial product at the factory. As we move into our next segment, I think we're reminded of the kind of information you just heard heard versus the kind of information that's getting into mainstream U.S. media. Uh, the journalists that scrutinized every word about Monica from the president are not applying the same standard, it seems, uh, with respect to uh, the targeting of sites in Afghanistan and Sudan. Lewinsky seems to get more uh, attention in the press still than the civilian casualties in the attack in Khartoum and in Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. Uh, so much airtime allotted to deciphering what the president president said in one case and so little in the other, we're going to get some help looking at just where the press have been performing well and where they still need to, well, shall we say, improve. Uh, from Sam Husseini with the Institute for Public Accuracy based in Washington, D.C. He's the former head of the Arab American Anti-Discrimination League's press office. Uh, Sam Husseini, what are you making of this coverage? Is this a too simplistic a comparison I'm making here? No, I think it's uh, quite on point. I think that the press are largely watchdogs or even attack dogs when it comes to Clinton, Clinton's personal life. 
and they're downright lapdogs when it comes to uh, political um, affairs, particularly um, uh, the bombing. Give us an um, example. And I think that, sure. Uh, well, I think that there's sort of a competition to play in, in a lot of pundits. It's, you know, whether they want to bomb other countries, particularly Arab countries, more or less than they hate Clinton. If they like to bomb more than they hate Clinton, then they're for this. Otherwise, not. Uh, I thought the most striking example, frankly, um, and, and it's difficult to tell because, as you say, that they're, uh, I was trying to monitor the cable networks last night, and they, they, were, uh, they were still focusing on Monica and such to a large degree. I, I think that there's almost an opposite wag the dog going on here, that, that Clinton might well be trying to distract the public um, from his um, uh, personal scandals and so on. Um, but I think the press is almost distracting the American public using the, 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 the scandals uh, away from what might be going on in Sudan and so on. I thought the most striking example was the, quote, most serious show was Nightline last Friday. You had Richard Haas, uh, you had Ted Koppel introducing two former Bush administration officials, uh, Larry Eagleburger, who was State Department, uh, head of the State Department for a short time, and Richard Haas, um, who was on the national security team and is now at the liberal at the uh, Brookings Institution, which is still occasionally called liberal in some circles. And you had there Koppel uh, saying how do we need to psychologically prepare the American public for an ongoing war against terrorism. We need to psychologically prepare and educate the American public for a curtailment of civil liberties. And Haas and Eagleburger were one-upping each other, trying to say, uh, well, we need to do this, we need to do that. We need to prepare uh, the American public for use against nuclear weapons, either by the United States or possibly even against the United States. Uh, Richard Haas uh, said that the problem was not anything that we do, it's who we are. That is, the people who, uh, whoever might be responsible, we still don't know. We, we have to take a step back. I think that the, the lies have been piled on top of the other. We still don't know who's responsible for the embassy bombing. Somebody put them on. Somebody certainly did that, but we don't know who. There's presume, there's allegedly compelling evidence that it was Osama bin Laden. We don't know that. The, the question was never asked, why was is this going on? Nobody's blowing up the Canadian embassy. Nobody's blowing up the Denmark embassy. Um, uh, Richard Haas said, there's, the problem is not anything we do, it's who we are. There, there is nothing in our policy that might make people resentful of us for legitimate reasons, even though these attacks are obviously illegitimate. Even um, the main critics seem to be ones that were to the right, calling for a more hawkish reaction. You even had David Korn of The Nation uh, on CNN on the 23rd saying, I mean, it's unclear whether we hit them hard enough to really disrupt future terrorism. Um, and I, I found that kind of stunning. What about um, the news reports in today's paper that present themselves as going behind the original evidence or the original statements of the administration on the evidence that they had? And then when you read the story, you actually find that the new information also comes from the administration. Is this an example of the administration being forced to reveal new data or to uh, discover or to present new uh, new grounds because of pressure from journalists? Or, or what is going on here? One could think this was kind of a healthy toing and froing here. I, th I think it's, you know, it, it, the best possible spin is being put on it. Um, I mean, CNN's line has been, CNN has learned that tests confirm um, uh, the, the soil samples. They didn't say according to anonymous U.S. officials. And, you know, if they have to be anonymous, I wish that they would at least give them a number so that we would know, 
was this the same anonymous U.S. official who told us that Arabs were responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing and that TWA 800 came down because of a bomb? I mean, we don't need to know their name, but at least is it the same guy who's doing this? Uh, I think that there's a tacit complicity between the press and uh, the government where the, the government hides behind anonymous sources and the press hides behind uh, these anonymous sources. Now, there's been um, quite an interesting the, distinction between the U.S. press and some of the European press, the European journalists being the first to actually visit the scene, as far as I can see, in Khartoum of the uh, the Shifa pharmaceutical plant, and the uh, the Brit- I mean, the, the, the European reporters being the first to visit the scene, and the British papers being the first over the weekend to challenge the president's so-called evidence and suggest that, in fact, the Clinton administration may indeed have had evidence to the contrary, that this was, in fact, a civilian site, as was reported in the Observer of this past Sunday. Uh, the Observer, indeed, uh, Agence France Press. Uh, the AP, I believe, picked up on it. And last night, ABC News, I think, was the only network that had your previous guest on. Um, so I, I think that that was, I mean, there, there's obviously compelling evidence to at least seriously scrutinize what the administration is doing, and I, I don't think that that's being picked up. But what is it that in, you in think a, in a terribly makes the, serious or robust way? What is it that you yeah. think makes the European press more aggressive on this issue than the American one? Except obviously the the, the obvious reason of, of sort of net patriotic loyalty or some such. Yeah, I think that's that's the main reason. I think that the press even. Went beyond. Uh, I mean, after the bombings in in the uh, on the embassies, you had the press, you know, li- telling, making the litany of times that uh, that U.S. targets have been the subject, the object of terrorism. For example, particularly in the Middle East, um, you had long charts and graphs and so on about, about these kinds of things. After the U.S. struck against, um, uh, you know, launched its missiles, you didn't see anybody doing a litany of times that the U.S. has. Um, uh, has bombed uh, countries in the region, and, there, and there's certainly no shortage of that. Um, th- th- there, there just seems to—I mean, the, the facts. Th- there are lots of facts plain to see, but it's just the way that things are put into perspective. Past lies by government officials uh, of you know terrible Arab boogeymen have not come up. Uh, from the Libyan hit squads that were alleged to be stalking President Reagan, to the uh, baby incubator story that was used to rally support. Uh, for the war against Iraq, to the alleged uh, uh, assassination of President Bush back in 1993, which was used to justify another bombing of Iraq, which was later largely debunked by Seymour Hersh. Uh, this past year, we had stories of alleged human experimentation stories in order to further demonize Saddam Hussein. Um, th- th- there's a whole pattern and litany of you know, sudden lies, sudden threats, that make it seem as if America is the great victim, is a ha- is a helpless player on the world stage, and we have to stand up for ourselves, and virtually compelling and goading the president into um, action, as they put it. Sam Husseini is with the Institute for Public Accuracy, based in Washington, D.C. Thanks very much, Sam, for being with us here on Democracy Now! The U.S. media may be blindly following where the State Department leads them, but the American public is less willing to follow Clinton's hawkish line, although you wouldn't know it watching network TV or reading the corporate papers, which rarely report on peace groups. We thought we would find you some information, some data about what's going on around the country. Here are some reports that we've gathered in the last two days. My name is Kevin Martin. I'm executive director of Illinois Peace Action in Chicago. 
Here in Chicago, uh, on two different occasions, uh, peace and justice groups organized uh, in the wake of the bombings of Afghanistan and Sudan to protest. First at the Federal Plaza, about 50 of us uh, were there the day after the bombing, a very spirited event with at least 12 different local peace and justice groups and good local media coverage by TV and also newspaper. And the following day was the Chicago Air and Water Show, where over 2 million people come to the lakefront in Chicago. Uh, we sort of call it the Air, Water, and Militarism Show. I think it's a big commercial for the military. And we used that opportunity to call a press conference to denounce both the Air and Water Show, where they have uh, the stealth bomber and the Blue Angels and things like that, and also to denounce the bombings of uh, Sudan and Iraq. There are about eight local peace and justice groups that uh, supported that action in that press conference, and we got excellent local press coverage. Every local TV station covered our press conference and also the Chicago Tribune. And generally, I think we're doing a good job of showing that there is not this monolith of support for bombing that the president called last week, that the more questions come out, the more opposition is going to build to, uh, to the U.S. bombings. My name is Elizabeth Creeley. I'm with California Peace Action. We're based in California. Our headquarters is in San Francisco. Um, this week in the peace community got together um, in San Francisco, specifically at the corner of Market and Powell. Um, I know that at least 300 to 400 people showed up um, and protested the terrorist bombings of Sudan and Afghanistan. Um, we will continue to organize against um, future airstrikes as they happen. At this point, there's no official coalition in San Francisco, but as everyone knows, San Francisco has a very long activist past. Our number is 415-695-9077. My name is Chris, and I am the disarmament coordinator at the War Resisters League. And as an organization, we have opposed the U.S. attacks on Afghanistan and um, the Sudan and have supported the demonstrations that have been called by various groups over the weekend in New York City um, to demonstrate our opposition to those attacks. Um, we've also called on people to join us at the Pentagon on October 19th for a day without the Pentagon because as long as the U.S. has the capacity to engage in gunboat diplomacy, as it has recently, then um, we feel that it will continue to do so, and so we want to reduce the U.S. government's ability to engage in this kind of uh, outrageous behavior around the world. Uh, anyone who's interested in reaching us, our phone number is 212-228-0450 or 1-800-975-9688. My name is Mark Jacobs. I'm the director of Westpac in White Plains, New York. We at Westpac are spearheading a call-in campaign to President Clinton, asking him not to fight terrorism with terrorism. We are asking people to insist that Mr. Clinton follow international law, not to act as if the United States is above the law. You can call the president at 202-456-1111. And express your opinion to stop U.S. terrorism. 
That's just a little sprinkling of the activities going on around the country in response to the U.S. bombing of Afghanistan and Sudan last week. We're going to go next to someone who's widely considered to be the leading dissident intellectual in this country, or one of them, Noam Chomsky. He's a professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Chomsky's written and lectured on international affairs, U.S. foreign policy, and contemporary issues. Um, just one note, before we get to the end of the program, we will give out those phone numbers that were just mentioned again. But... Um, um, coming now to you, Noam Chomsky, all this discussion that immediately preceded you on this program about what exactly was there at the Sudanese plant, is, is it really relevant? Is this really the point here? It's uh, of some interest, but it's not the main, in my opinion, it's not the main point. I mean, let's, let's assume that the United States has completely credible evidence uh, that uh, the plant is uh, producing components for nerve gas. Let's just I mean, there's no reason to believe that, but let's assume it. Uh, then the U.S. Act is simply an act of international terrorism. Uh, there's no, uh, uh, it, the international law and indeed our own constitution is quite explicit on this. Uh, in the case of uh, the uh, uh, concern about a threat uh, to, the, to peace, uh, a law-abiding state is required, obligated, to go to the Security Council uh, uh, present its complaint and uh, ask the Security Council to respond. There's no relevant exception to this, and the, the administration knows it perfectly well. They've uh, claimed an exemption under Article 51 of the UN Charter, but that's simply ludicrous. I mean, all one has to do is read the wording of it to see how nonsensical that is, and the fact that it's taken seriously by commentators in the press is a comment on them, not on the law. Uh, so the real question in my mind is, do we or do we not take seriously the position of the administration uh, in justifying what it's done? Uh, if we do take it seriously, that means that any state in the world, or in fact any group in the world, has a perfect right to set off bombs, uh, say, in Washington uh, or Tel Aviv or you know London or wherever they like, uh, if they believe or claim to believe that uh, those countries are involved in uh, uh, acts of violence against them. And there's certainly no shortage of evidence. I mean, let's take, take the most obvious example, Cuba. Uh, Cuba's been the main target of terrorism for uh, 40 years, since October 1959, when planes based in Miami started bombing Cuba. Uh, there's no enormous secret about it. The Kennedy operation, Mongoose operations, were uh, extreme uh, terrorist acts which killed probably hundreds of people, and it, it goes on in years following with all sorts of terrorism. It goes on until last, the last known act is last summer, uh, when it is conceded, even finally by the New York Times, uh, that uh, the acts were taken uh, were carried out by uh, the world's leading terrorist, uh, Luis Posada Carrillas, who's got a long CIA connection back to the Bay of Pigs, and, were, and that the Miami groups were involved. So that certainly, and it killed, it killed an, an Italian visitor and caused a lot of damage and so on. Uh, that's quite recent. Uh, so surely, by Clinton administration standards, Cuba has every right to set off bombs in Washington or New York. Uh, and then we can go down a long list. I mean, that's just one. Uh, well, plainly, the administration doesn't intend its position to be taken seriously uh, because of the consequences. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is that... Uh, uh, we don't take the position seriously, and we recognize that uh, the U.S. simply 
considers itself to be, uh, recognizes that it's the most powerful state in the world, and it can do what it feels like. You're listening to Noam Chomsky. Stay tuned. We'll be back with you in 60 seconds. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Sitting in for Amy Goodman, I'm Laura Flanders, and with us on the line is Noam Chomsky, who's speaking to us from his vacation in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, Professor Chomsky, we may or may not take the president's line seriously, but just for the for the purpose of discussion, um, in his effort, in the administration's effort to uh, defend their decisions yesterday, in addition to fanning out anonymous government sources, the president released a letter, the letter that he had written to Congress uh, on the, the night of the bombing, explaining his actions and so on and so forth. Uh, in that letter of August 20th, he wrote that he had authorized an amendment of a 1995 executive order that declared a national emergency and justified all sorts of actions against terrorists, quote, in the view of the danger posed to the national security, foreign policy, and economy of the U.S. by activities of Osama bin Laden that disrupt the Middle East peace process. That was the pretext. That was the principle or the justification for the extension of this uh, executive order from 1995. The danger posed to national security, foreign policy, and economy of the U.S. by activities that disrupt the Middle East peace process. If we take that at its face, what is really being said here? What are What is that danger? Well, first of all, remember that the, that uh, those declarations and the wording are routine. They're produced by presidents regularly whenever they want to do anything. So, for example, in uh, uh, 1985, uh, President Reagan, uh, uh, on May 1st, he chose Law Day, uh, 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 pre- uh, presented exactly the same declaration, except that instead of bin Laden, he referred to Nicaragua. Uh, the dangers posed to the national security and the uh, economy of the United States and so on by Nicaragua justify us in carrying out uh, uh, a terrorist war against Nicaragua, which incidentally was condemned by the World Court. Uh, and this continued. We were, and we, the United States was in a state of emergency, national emergency, through the 80s. Although, you know, people may not have noticed it. Uh, this happens whenever the president wants to do something. As for disrupting the Middle East peace process, uh, first of all, we have to uh, we have to raise a question about whether it's possible to disrupt something that doesn't exist and never has existed. Uh, what's called the U.S. the Middle East peace process is simply the U.S. triumph uh, after 20 years of extreme rejectionism, in which it blocked every effort at uh, uh, diplomatic settlement and negotiations. Uh, finally, after the Iraq War, the U.S. was in a powerful enough position to ram through its own highly rejectionist proposals. 
uh, for a kind of uh, Palestinian bantu stint. That's what's called the peace process. So it's hard to disrupt. You know, it's like saying that somebody was trying to disrupt South Africa's uh, peace process in the early 60s uh, when they were establishing Transkei and so on. Uh, even to talk about disrupting the peace process or the peace process is to accept uh, propagandistic assumptions that no serious person should accept. Uh, that what's called the peace process is a U.S. rejectionist program held in international isolation for 20 years until they could finally ram it through. However, if we talk about disrupting this uh, U.S.-initiated Bantustan program, well, in fact, the person who's disrupting the U.S. program at the moment is, the, the, is uh, Netanyahu and the Likud government. Uh, but, uh, you know, and there's a lot of talk about that. But even that talk is misleading because it presupposes that there's something serious to disrupt. Mm. Well, coming back to the uh, national security, foreign policy and, econ- and economy of the U.S. aspects of the story, um, what are the economic, for example, the economic uh, interests to which Osama bin Laden poses some kind of danger? He poses any threat, but that there's a, there's a much broader threat of which this is a very minuscule uh, part. Uh, a much more serious example of the threat was uh, uh, last December, uh, last fall, when uh, uh, the U.S. was trying to uh, build up, uh, last fall and early spring, when the U.S. was trying to build up support in the Middle East region for the planned attack against Iraq uh, and couldn't do it. It, it got overwhelming opposition. Uh, the U.S. Uh, organized a, uh, a Middle East economic conference in Qatar, I think it was December, and nobody would show up uh, except Israel. Uh, and uh, uh, at the same time, in fact, very dramatically, right at the peak of the Iraq crisis, it wasn't reported here, but right at the peak of the Iraq crisis, it was in sort of March, uh, I think it was early March, uh, the uh, Saudi government, uh, Saudi Arabia is the main concern. That's where all the oil is, most of the oil. Uh, the Saudi government uh, invited uh, former President Rafsanjani of Iran uh, on a state visit and very went way out of the way to treat him with great pomp and ceremony, you know, met the king and so on and so forth. At about the same time, Madeleine Albright was there and was given the back of their hand. They wouldn't talk, barely talk to her. Uh, and in fact, the uh, high princes, you know, the the, the royal family, which basically owns the country, uh, they uh, made it clear that they were seriously considering uh, moves towards uh, accepting long-standing Iranian proposals for rapprochement uh, and uh, establishment of some kind of regional uh, security uh, system from in which the United States would be marginalized. Uh, these countries are very concerned not just about U.S. support for Israel, uh, but uh, also for the uh, uh, very uh, rapidly growing and now quite visible uh, Israeli-Turkish alliance under U.S. aegis with joint military maneuvers in the U.S. and in the Israeli jets, meaning U.S. jets piloted by Israeli pilots, uh, uh, carrying out the maneuvers in eastern Turkey uh, with the obvious intention of uh, threatening Iran. Uh, these are advanced jets that the U.S. has sent very sophisticated, I don't think NATO even has them, uh, which can fly to Iran uh, and return without refueling. Uh, this is a very definite and serious threat. It's part of a long-standing U.S. program, goes back uh, many years, decades, uh, to try to control the oil-producing regions. 
with a um, sometimes called a peripheral alliance, an alliance of primarily non-Arab states, almost all non-Arab states, uh, that uh, uh, will make sure that the riches of the region, which are enormous, uh, flow to the West, primarily to the U.S. and secondarily the United Kingdom, uh, rather than uh, to the people of the region. And that uh, causes plenty of opposition. It uh, leads to what's called radical nationalism, uh, opposition to the U.S. presence and power in the region, uh, where people simply can't get it through their heads that the oil wealth is supposed to benefit Westerners, primarily Americans, not them. Uh, they're kind of backward in that way. And this is a long-standing problem. It's getting much more serious. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, are historic enemies. In fact, technically, there's still a war over Iranian occupation of uh, Saudi islands uh, under the Shah, and the rapprochement is extremely serious. Uh, the United States is certainly worried about it. Uh, the uh, long-term, it's not so long-term, if you look a decade or two ahead, uh, and planners certainly do, uh, the Middle East oil-producing regions, uh, are, uh, which, are, which, which are the main center of energy for the next generation or two at least, uh, the, they are becoming more and more important. The rate of oil discovery has uh, declined it, uh, since the mid-60s. It was going up until then, uh, even with uh, high technology and bringing more expensive resources online and so on and so forth. And the general projections are that uh, over the coming years, the Middle East region will be even more significant as an energy source and a source of profits. Uh, and the U.S. surely wants to, has all, and has been a prime concern of U.S. policy to maintain its uh, uh, domination of that region. This extends now to the uh, Caspian region, which is nowhere near the Gulf, but is significant enough. So just to clarify, you're suggesting here then that this this bombing, this missile attack on Sudan, Afghanistan, Sudan in particular, wiping out of 50% of the medical supplies of that country, is an exercise in signal sending to signal Saudi Arabia? Sending. Yeah, I mean, remember, I mean, Sudan and Afghanistan are pariah states, kind of like Libya. Nobody's going to defend them. Uh, furthermore, they have no means of self-defense. So it's a sort of free bombing. I mean, you do it for free. Uh, just the way uh, the United States used uh, Libya as a punching bag right through the 1980s. You know, anytime you needed something to, for domestic purposes, you know, attack Libya. Uh, this is quite safe. Nobody's going to defend them. Everybody hates them, uh, including the people of the region, including their own population for the most part. Uh, so, yeah, you can send a signal that way. Mm. Now, one other part, as we are kind of unpacking the the administration's rhetoric itself, um, albeit without the help of the administration spokesperson who is going to be with us on the program, um, one of the other arguments, one of the other pretexts for this attack has been to to take a st stand against terrorism, to, to wipe out uh, those who would wipe out uh, the, the U.S., you know, uh, what the U.S. stands for in the world, and that would would danger and, and intimidate uh, well, Americans. What does he what What does he stand for? Well, what he stands for is opposing the U.S. occupation. What he calls the U.S. occupation of Saudi Arabia. That's what he stands for. 
what about the effectiveness argument? Even if the threat argument is is clearly, you know, up for debate, as you put it, or, or, or dis disputable, what about the idea the idea that there there even could be some effectiveness to a targeting like this? And assault yeah, of course, there could. I mean, the U.S. certainly knows that. I mean, the just let's go back to Cuba. Uh, the U.S. attack against Cuba, which is the major terrorist attack in international terrorism in the current period, has been very effective. The U.S. terrorist war against Nicaragua was extraordinarily effective. I mean, Israeli terrorism in Lebanon, which means U.S. terrorism, which goes back many years, has been very effective. If the U.S. is interested in deterring terrorism, it doesn't have to go very far. It can start right in Washington. And when you we were talking at the very early part of the of this interview about the Middle East so-called peace process, as you put it, the U.S.-backed Bantustan program, um, Israel and Israel's uh, treatment or dealing with so-called terrorists has been adopted as a model, even referred to as a model in this mm. debate. That's uh, quite interesting how they did it. There was a long report of quoting all the top you know, terrorologists, specialists in terrorism and Israel and the United States uh, on exactly that theme, showing, saying, yeah, now the United States is taking over the Israeli policy. And they gave a very interesting example as their lead example, which, of course, they applauded. Uh, it was an Israeli uh, terrorist uh, helicopter attack uh, in Lebanon, and north of their security zone. Security zone is illegally occupied, but forget that. North of the security zone in Lebanon proper, which they don't even claim, uh, a helicopter attack uh, shot a rocket at a car. Uh, they were trying to kill uh, Sheikh Moussaoui, who's a Hezbollah leader, and they did kill him and his wife and his infant child. Uh, this was in 1992, and that was what was given as the uh, example of the model that the United States should be following. Well, it's an interesting example. I mean, as every one of them knew, anyone who pays attention to these affairs knows, uh, up until that time, uh, Israel's northern border was quiet. Uh, there were no uh, Hezbollah uh, rocket attacks in northern Israel or other attacks. Uh, the, uh, even uh, though Israel was carrying out constant terrorist acts in Lebanon, in the security zone and beyond it, uh, Hezbollah retaliated, the Shiite retaliation, the re retaliation of the, you know, the Lebanese peasants, basically, uh, whoever organization they're in, uh, was against uh, Israeli forces and their clients in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon, the security zone. After the attack on Mosawi, the retaliation started hitting northern Israel. Now, the way that's been described, and that's what led to uh, uh, Rabin's uh, invasion and later Shimon Peres' invasion, uh, the last one in 1996, uh, you know, including the huge Kana atrocity, uh, which, which were described here as Israeli, as Israeli retaliations against Hezbollah terrorism. Well, you take a look at the interactions and you discover that the Hezbollah terrorism, so-called, began after the, the murder of Musawi and his wife and child, uh, which is presented as a model. And in fact, that uh, terrorism was, re was overwhelmingly retaliation to Israeli uh, terrorist attacks, which prior to the Musawi murder had been focused within the, the Israeli-occupied territory. So that's the model. Uh, now, you know, it is inconceivable that any of the people they quoted doesn't know all of this. But I'd check and see if you saw a word about it. <laughs>
And while we're talking about words, let's close where we began, which was with some discussion of the media coverage of all of this. I mean, stenographers to power hardly even describes the situation now. Uh, The relationship has become much closer, it seems, with today the press carrying the words of this anonymous uh, government uh, representative. Um, What do you make, really, of how this story is being covered here? And where can people go for analysis that would take them a little deeper into understanding what's really going on? Well, in all the press coverage that I have seen, there was only, uh, there's been virtually nothing that bore on the, that even bore on the issue. Uh, one exception to this was a letter published on, in the New York Times by an international law professor who pointed out that whatever the facts are, the United States simply has no authorization to use force and violence. Uh, that's uh, the policy of Nazi Germany, you know, or Saddam Hussein or something. So the whole discussion is beside the point. So one letter did mention the point. Uh, there were other reports which are of some interest. So, for example, the August 20th was the date when you mentioned Clinton sent the letter to Congress. Uh, it was also the day uh, on which the uh, uh, Archbishop Tutu, South African uh, Archbishop, uh, who is the head of the uh, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, released documents, South African intelligence documents that they discovered, uh, indicating uh, that uh, British and U.S. intelligence uh, were involved in the planning and probably implementation of the murder of Hammerschuld uh, in uh, I think it was September 1961, uh, where his plane blew up, and uh, they found documents showing... Uh, U.S. and parent, U.S. and British uh, involvement in the planning of this and probably implementation of it. Well, that's nice timing, you know, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, but uh, the major, as far as the press coverage is concerned, the prime issue, does the U.S. have a unilateral right to use force and violence whenever it feels like it, uh, a right which, say, Cuba or, you know, Lebanon or other countries don't have? That issue isn't even raised. Uh, I can't find a word about it. Uh, except for what I mentioned, uh, it is simply taken for granted that the U.S. is a violent terrorist state that does what it likes. Uh, then we get to the secondary questions: uh, whether uh, you know what are the effects of what they're doing? Do they know anything about Sudan's uh, chemical plant and so on? And here the reporting is as you expect. I mean, government positions are presented as you know they, they lead the story, and if you get down to the bottom of the page, you notice. Uh, there's no evidence. So, for example, the Times had a very amusing page the other day, uh, internal page, in which at the upper left-hand corner there was, uh, uh, they were quoting the briefing to the senators and how impressed they were with the uh, ironclad evidence that uh, uh, the, the, the U.S. knew exactly what it was doing, and uh, they said that what seconds. tied it up was the testimony of Odette. Then the bottom of the page, in the right lower right-hand part, was a report from Kenya, uh, where the head of the FBI investigation said, we don't know anything, he won't talk. You know? <laughs> Noam Chomsky is a professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and considered, I think, by many to be one of the leading dissident intellectuals in the United States. I'd like to thank you for being with us here on Democracy Now! and encourage all of you to contact our webpage, the webpage for Pacifica and therefore also for Democracy Now! where we will list some of the phone numbers for the action groups that we quoted earlier in today's program. You can also call us at our comment line and let us know 
know what protests and peace actions are going on in your community, our number is 212-209-2999, 212-209-2999. And for a copy of today's show or any other democracy program, you can call yet another number, this time a toll-free one, 1-800-735-0230, one 800 Our email address is Pacifica. It's at www.pacifica.org. That's our website, www.pacifica.org. Our email address, democracy at pacifica.org. For Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Sitting in for Amy Goodman, I'm Laura Flanders.